0: So Isaiah 53, um, I'm not sure why the people who decided to break up the the Bible into these chapters and verses didn't start chapter 53 at verse 13 of 52 because this is all very clearly one section. But this passage is just gloriously reminding us of the, the, the grace that God has given us in Jesus Christ as he suffers for us. But here's the thing, if you were to ask anybody, anybody at all, uh, whether God punishes bad people and rewards good people, they would say, of course he does. Everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. Everybody gets that. Like, that's just how it is, right? God has to do that. He has to punish bad people and reward good people. But I, I think that's really a um, some form of karma that we've tried to implant into the God of the Bible because the, the gospel disagrees with this idea entirely. It, it disagrees because the Bible says in Romans 4 verse 5 that God justifies the ungodly. So that word justifies is a really important word. And, and here's essentially what Paul means when he says that God justified the ungodly. It means that God actually declares guilty people righteous and bad people he treats as if they're good people. Certainly not on their own basis, right? Not on the basis of their efforts, but because of Jesus. And and that's really a scandalous idea. It's it's actually offensive to us because as human beings, we're just so ingrained and we have to get what we deserve. So if we do good, we deserve... Good in return. If we do bad, we deserve bad. That's just how our brains work and how we're wired. But God has this scandalous message of the gospel, and He says to us, No, 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 I'm actually going to take the only good person who's ever lived. And the only reason He's the good person is because He's God who became a man. This man, Jesus Christ, is the only good that has ever lived. And He's going to do all that He has to do to stand in your place and make you good before God. That is a very, very big deal. And that's really what Isaiah is talking about in this chapter. This chapter is all about Jesus Christ and what he would do for sinners. And it's a very, very good thing that he does. It is a great thing that God justifies the ungodly because every one of us is ungodly. And we actually know that. I I don't think we have to really do a lot of convincing of that. I think deep down we know that. We know we haven't been the people that we should be. And here's here's how this kind of works out. We live with a very deep unease about ourselves. And and that's why in so many ways we live in denial. We're always eager to tell people how good we are and how we're not like Hitler, and how we're not bad, and how we're not this and that, right? Because deep down, we have a very uneasy feeling about ourselves. Um, so think about last time you heard about um, a politician, or an athlete, or a pastor who did something immoral, right? Covered up some kind of cheating, or lying, or abuse. And, you know, when we discover those things, we demand that that person be held accountable. We demand that person be, uh, you know, have an honest reckoning. And we should. And, and, but, that's, but that's really, be, and at least in our day and age, it is just spiraled way out of control. It's something that people are referring to now as, as cancel culture. Have you heard about this cancel culture? It's basically where someone who has way too much time on their hands, probably living in mom's basement, watching YouTube all day, um, find something somewhere from way deep in, you know, 20 years ago that someone famous did or said, and then publicly outs them and says, "Look what they did! Look how terrible they are! They're canceled now. We got to cancel them." It's really kind of annoying, to be honest. But, but here's the thing: we don't actually require that same level of honesty for ourselves. It'd be one thing if we held everybody to the same standards. But but when you can pull out something that someone said or did 15, 20, 30 years ago and basically say, nope, they're done. We can't watch their TV show anymore. We can't watch their movies anymore. We can't listen to their music anymore. We can't vote for them anymore. Whatever it is, right? you you find this, but you don't see it actually applying to us. Because we're all you know, we're all a bunch of nobodies, right? Nobody, no one's looking up my social media stuff and like pulling out things I said 20 years ago. Thankfully, it didn't exist back then, so I get a pass on that. But, um, but yeah, this is, this is where we're at as a culture. But we don't hold ourselves to that same standard. And here's the thing. So cover-ups, <laughs> we always think of cover-ups from like the political standpoint or from people in, in power, but cover-ups are really what we all do. We all do this when because it's a strategy that self-righteous people use. And we use cover-ups to, to cover up a guilty conscience. And this is why we blame others. This is why we point the finger at, at everybody else. This is why we're always using self-justification. It's because of our own troubled conscience. And sur- sure, we might try to dismiss that, um, the the feelings of guilt we might dismiss as Uh, social conditioning or the culture arbitrarily deciding what's right and wrong or maybe our parents' neurosis or whatever we might want to just try to accuse other people of. But think about this. The next time that you have a a fight uh, with your spouse or your children or your parents or your roommate or your neighbor or whoever, next time you're in a fight with somebody, ask yourself, why do I always have to be right Right? We, we, ha- we always dig our heels in, and we want to be right. We have to be right. And you know why? It's because we're not really sure we are. Deep down, that's why. And of course, none of us want to delve into those, the, the inner psyche of our hearts, but we need to. We, need, we feel we need to be right because it's how we reassure ourselves. And now here's what Pastor Ray Ortland has to say about it. I think it's really insightful. He writes this there's a reason why we shift the blame. There's a reason why our problems are always someone else's fault. There's a reason why parents blame their children and husbands blame their wives and so forth. The reason we continually pass the buck is so that we is that we know we cannot bear our own guilt. We want so desperately for others to bear it for us. So we dump it on them even without noticing what's happening in our thoughts. He says this is a major source of tension in our homes and workplaces and our churches. So here's the thing. Um, We, as human beings, cannot bear the weight of our own sin. We can't. So every single one of us needs a scapegoat. And that's where the beauty of the gospel comes in. That Jesus is our willing scapegoat. It was at the cross that Jesus bore the unbearable guilt of you and me. It was at the cross that Jesus takes away our guilt. It's because Jesus loves guilty people. And in the gospel, the the truth is that our only righteousness will be Jesus's righteousness and Jesus's only guilt will be our guilt. And that's the arrangement. It has to be that way. So, with all that introduction behind us, let's get into our passage. We'll throw the words up on the screen here for you to follow along if you don't have a Bible. Um, and, and here's, we're, we're gonna start in verse 13 uh, of 52 and then walk through the 12 verses of 53. And so there's five paragraphs of three verses each. And each three-verse paragraph gives us a different angle to what Jesus did to remove our guilt. So let's look at the first one, 13 through 15. It says, behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now let's just stop there for a second. This is the, the fourth and final servant song of the book of Isaiah. Isaiah has four songs that he publishes or you know, produced uh, poems essentially about the servant of the Lord, about the Messiah. And these are really about Jesus, right? Because he's the servant. And so this is setting us up for that final servant song. So, so behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see and that which they have not heard they understand. Isaiah is describing to us Jesus Christ hundreds of years before Jesus ever came to earth. But what he's describing to us is this. The first way Jesus removes our guilt is by being repulsive before our eyes and yet being victorious in what he accomplished. This is an amazing contrast because what, what we're seeing here is a contrast between a victorious Savior that victory actually came through what seemed like defeat, what seemed like this repulsive treatment of the, the Son of God. He, he's describing the victory of Jesus in the first verse, in verse 13. It's what he means when he says that the servant will act wisely, or um, another way that that could be translated is uh, shall prosper, that he shall prosper. Um, So in other words, he's going to accomplish what he he set out to do. And here's what's important to note. The servant of the Lord is not to be pitied. He's meant to be worshipped. But worship is not the first response people had to Jesus. The first thing that they noticed about this crucified Savior is that he actually looked crucified, which was not a pretty picture. We don't, we don't fully grasp it because it's not in front of us as much as it was in these days and in the days of Jesus. But here's what, here's what we're seeing. Jesus was beaten so badly by the Roman soldiers <clears throat> that nobody was actually asking, oh, is this the servant of the Lord? They were asking essentially, is this a human <laughs> Isn't that what Isaiah says? His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, meaning his appearance did not even look like a human anymore. He was so badly marred and just his body was destroyed by the scourging and by the beatings that he received prior to the crucifixion. And yet it's in this way, this beautiful, strange way, that the extreme suffering he experienced is the same measure as the extreme power he has to heal. If you look at verse 15, it says, so shall he sprinkle many nations. This is a reference to the Old Testament system of of sacrifices where the priest would kill an innocent lamb and then would sprinkle the blood of that lamb on the altar and on himself and on the people. The sprinkling, that act of sprinkling was symbolic of the fact that the blood of that lamb applies to them. And Jesus, though he was so marred beyond human semblance, he, his, his act of, of sacrifice actually accomplishes for many nations the act of purifying and healing that they so desperately need. And here's what we need to know. Nobody in the world thought God would take away our guilt by bearing it himself. Even those of us who understand the gospel struggle to grasp this. But this is the way. This, as as counterintuitive, as scandalous as it is, this is the way with one lonely man abandoned and dug into the dirt by our heels. But he gives us life-transforming grace. Let's keep keep moving into 53 here. Um, Verse 1 through 3 who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground he had no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. Um, I think it's important to note, it's striking to note, actually, that when Jesus lived on earth, um, even the people who were closest to him did not really know who he was. They didn't really recognize him for who he was. Uh, I'll give you some examples. His disciples misunderstood him pretty much every time, every time he spoke. Um, His family thought he was crazy, like legitimately crazy. There's a part of the gospel story where his brothers come to actually force him to come home because he's, he's embarrassing them and they think he's nuts. And mom comes along with them. Now, we don't know how, how mom felt exactly, but she was probably just there to you know break up the fights like moms do. And so, um, she, you know, so his own family uh, thought he was nuts at least his siblings, the leaders thought that he was a threat to them. That's why they tried to kill him, uh, not just once. It wasn't like suddenly they tried to crucify him. It's like his whole three-year ministry, they're trying to find ways to kill him because they thought he was a threat to them. And the average person in Israel at that time, you know, they they just wanted Jesus for the miracles. (laughs) They just wanted to use him to get what they wanted. And and we can read that and we can go, "Oh, look at those selfish, foolish people." But are we really any different? I mean, really deep down. Don't we at times think that all this is crazy? I mean, Paul seems to indicate that we should think it's crazy. He calls it a a stumbling block and foolish to those who aren't being saved by it. Right? And so we we can understand that, "Oh, yeah, this sounds crazy," as his family thought so and Sometimes I think we do too. I know we're not supposed to admit that in church, but I think sometimes we do feel that. We certainly misunderstand him. His disciples did. We definitely think that he's a threat to our way of life because he is. He's not gonna just let us live however we want. <laughs> he's gonna change us. We and that's a threat if we if we're comfortable. We definitely want to use Jesus for our own selfish gains at times. So here's the question. How do we break that that barrier? How do we break the barriers of doubt or misunderstanding or fear or whatever else is there and really embrace Jesus Christ? Well, the answer is in verse 1. It says, Who has believed what he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. So Isaiah begins this this verse with, who has actually believed this? And then he answers it in verse, the end of verse one, he says, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, here's what he's saying. The way that we overcome this barrier to faith is that God enables us. It's his arm revealing to us the truth. And, and we embrace it. Otherwise, we would never believe. We need God's help to believe. We need it because we are so superficial. We look at the surface of things. We judge by appearances. We all do. How someone dresses, what their haircut looks like, whether they have tattoos or not, what, what skin color they have, where they're from what their accent is like. We, we make judgments on superficial things. But Jesus does not even try to be impressive on the physical outward level. He, he comes to us, as Isaiah says, like a root out of a dry ground, meaning he, he's like this unpromising person who's shown up to this failed nation. I mean, think about it. If God was going to rescue the world in an impressive way, he would not have sent Jesus to Israel. He would have sent him to Rome because Rome was where the power was. Israel was a failed nation under the thumb of the Roman Empire at this point in time. And yet Jesus comes to that place, to that broken people, to that broken land, but he does not come in any impressive way. The Bible says he was that there was no former majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Jesus was not like Saul, King Saul, who was chosen for his height and his stature and his and his you know handsomeness. People looked at Saul and said that's a king right there. When God chooses a king, he chooses David. And David was even Samuel was like, really? This this kid? He's the youngest of all these brothers he's you know he's not that attractive he's not he's not tall he's this little little guy you know god doesn't look at the outward appearance he looks at the heart and jesus is the culmination of that he was not attractive on the physical level but he was but he was attractive because of of the grace of god working through him and showing people who he is so here's the question how Or why did the servant of the Lord sink to such a low point? Is not God described in the Bible as beautiful and glorious and all these wonderful terms? Yes. So why would God, when he became a man, not be those things? Well, it's because he had to become like us so that we could become like him. The only true remedy for the guilt that tortures us has shown up right here in front of us. And God has opened our eyes to see it. He accepted it as the price love had to pay to give us our lives back. Let's keep going. Let's go to verse 4 through 6. And this is really the the heart of the passage. This is where it all really comes together. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What's amazing in this passage is though Isaiah is writing hundreds of years before Jesus and though we're living thousands of years after Jesus, Isaiah is writing this as if we were actually at the cross. Notice this. He has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken. He's speaking as if we were actually there. And here's the truth. It's because we were there. Not physically, not personally, right? But our guilt was there. Our sin was there. And wasn't it our guilt that required Jesus to die? And if it wasn't, then what did require Jesus to die? I, I was reminded, of, I'm reminded of this old American spiritual song that starts with, Were You There When They Crucified My Lord? Some of you have probably heard it, maybe Johnny Cash's version of it or some other version. But it's, I always heard that song and I thought, that's weird. Like, I don't think I was. <laughs> but but actually I think that song is far more right than my, my inclination. Because we were there, I was there, my, our sin was there. And so, yes, I wasn't there with my own two eyes, but but my guilt was there. Jesus, in the prior uh, verse, verse um, 3, is described as a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And then here in verse 4, it says that he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. So Jesus was a man of sorrows, but they weren't his sorrows. They were ours. Jesus took our place, took our sorrows, took our sins at the cross. Jesus put himself in the place of sinners. The unbearable weight of our guilt was given to him. And he sank under it. Listen, we need to look to him today. We, we need to see him by faith. We need to see his dying love for us. We need to see his blood was flowing down at the cross, but it wasn't wasted. It, In fact, it flows out to us, to guilty us. You know, I know we're all in different places and we've all, We've all got different stories, but all of us can resonate with this, that we, we have all done things that have shamed ourselves. And here's the thing. When we have been shamed, um, where we want to go is we want to hide. But what the cross reminds us of is that that shame, when it's given to Jesus, flows away from us towards the cross where Jesus sits ashamed for us and that his blood comes back towards us and frees us from the burden of our shame. Every one of us has felt shamed. Every one of us has done things that were, that were wrong. And, and yet it, when we bring our wrongs to Jesus, those wrongs flow from us to the cross where he is Paying for that wrong. When you sin, Jesus' blood covers that sin and it's paid for by Jesus. Jesus is dying on a cross for your sins. And his righteousness then flows to you and frees you forever. The blood of Jesus is flowing out to sinners of all kinds, taking from us our guilt, our shame, our loss, our tears, our despair. And he gives us a whole new life. Jesus is saying to us right now, I don't want you to bear your burden any second longer. Let my suffering give you peace. Let my stripes heal you. Let's go on to verse 7 through 9. It says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that's led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked, with a rich man in his death, though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This is telling us that Jesus takes away our guilt because he died in innocence. The death of Jesus was a miscarriage of human justice, but it was also his choice. He willingly laid down his life for us as a lamb led to the slaughter, but he he didn't deserve what he received. His actions and his words were entirely innocent. That's what that's what verse 9 tells us. Though he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. There was nothing wrong with the way he spoke. There was nothing wrong with the way he acted. And yet he was killed and crucified for sinners. Uninnocent un- people. He dies for an in innocence. We're told at the end of verse 9 here or in the beginning of verse 9 that he was, that, that kind of, insult to injury he dies and then was made a grave with the wicked he's buried with the wicked and that's that would be a terrible way to end the story but the story's not over yet if you look at verse 10 through 12 says yet it was the will of the lord to crush him he has put him to grief Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This passage, chapter 53, is so much about the death of Christ but here in the last few verses we get the glimmers of the resurrection. We, we see um, that that. Jesus Christ went to the cross and yet is victorious. That's what it means when uh, in verse 11, uh, let me see here, hang on. Um, Yeah, one of these verses. Oh yeah, yeah, verse 12, there it is. Um, It says, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong. Okay, so to the victor goes the spoils. You've heard that? How could Jesus have the spoils be divided with, with him if he weren't victorious? Right. He's, he's got victory here because he's being, he's raised from the dead. And then at the end of verse 12, it says that he makes intercession for the transgressors. You can't make intercession for someone if you're not alive. You, you, we have this living Savior who intercedes for us, who's, who's with us through it all and stands between us and the Father. That's what Paul says when he says that there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There's one mediator. There's only one person who can stand in that gap between us and God And it's Jesus Christ because he was crucified in innocence and raised again in victory. So, what should be our response? Well, the answer is simple, but it's vital. We believe the gospel. Here's what that means it means we stop creating our own imagined righteousness. We stop creating some pile of garbage that we call our moral superiority over other sinners. Right? It's always easy to compare ourselves to other sinners, but we, we got to stop building up this pile of garbage that we call moral superiority and we, and because ultimately that cannot offset our guilt. It only makes things worse. And so what we do when we believe the gospel is we Im- admit the ugly truth of it all. And we revere Jesus Christ, crucified for sinners, and we receive his grace with empty hands of faith. So, if you're here today, and I just want to, and I don't know where everyone's at, but I just want to say if you're an unbeliever here today, if you're sitting here thinking, I don't think I've ever trusted Jesus for anything, here's, here's what I would welcome you to do Admit that you've gone too far to get yourself out starts there. Don't try to fix yourself. Admit you've gone too far. Let the scapegoat of Jesus Christ bear your guilt away from you. And here's the best news of all. God will never bring it up again. You might bring it up again, but God never will. He promises us in his word that he will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. And as the passage we read this morning before our service, Psalm 103 tells us that he will remove our transgressions as far as the east is from the west. Will you receive Christ today as your Savior? But but if you're in the room here and you are a believer, then let me just encourage you with this. You know the way to refreshment. Take your sins to Christ. Nothing really changes, right? We don't outgrow this. We tell Jesus everything. He already knows it all. So what's the point in pretending? Let's tell him everything. And here's the promise. When we tell him everything, here's what he says. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We have an amazing God that we lean into, a God who died in our place to bring us justification, to justify the ungodly. Jesus stood in the place of the ungodly. Let's trust him. And Now, for the rest of our time, we're going to sing a couple songs, but um, we want to take communion together as well today. So we'll invite you, um, as the first song is is led for us, um, to go to one of the tables and Get your cup. Now we have the cups stacked on top of each other. The bottom cup has the bread. The top cup has the juice. That way we're not having to pass the plates around and get everybody touching the same stuff. So would you just go to one of the tables as you, during the first song, you'll have maybe four or five minutes um, and then just bring those back to your seat and hold on to them and then we'll lead lead that time together and we'll take it all together. Um, so I'll pray for us and I'll invite uh, the Churchills to come up and lead us a couple of songs here this morning and uh, we'll we'll go from there. Let's pray. Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for the great grace you've given us in Jesus, that though we're sinners, he made us righteous because of his sacrificial death. We pray that that truth would just stir our hearts to joy today and we pray that we would lift all these things to you in Jesus' name. Amen.